What if all you needed to get better in every way was available at the touch of a hand or the sound of a voice or even a vibration? Let's talk about how that happens, who can do it, and where to find them. I'm John Webster, and this is The Hesitant Healer. Greetings, healers and healies and listeners and people who love podcasts and people who just found me and anybody else in podcast land that is listening to The Hesitant Healer. I'm John Webster. I'm The Hesitant Healer. I'm here with my trusty, faithful, gorgeous sidekick, Lisa Kay. <laughs> Good morning. She laughs because she doesn't think she's gorgeous. <laughs> but if you've met her, you know inside and out she oh. is. All right. We have a subject today which is, uh, I don't know that it's controversial. No? I don't. Well, perhaps. I have to say it's a, it's a subject that when I was growing up, we were taught you didn't talk about. All right. I'll buy that. We don't, we don't talk about it much. But today's subject is on grief. And uh, Lisa Kay and I have been discussing uh, for many minutes this morning uh, how big we're going to make this one. I, I, I'm pretty sure we're going to do a two-parter because we're going to have a guest person come in who is going to give us her experience. But I thought we needed to predicate a little bit of this experience uh, based on our own and uh, and then hear from somebody else who has a, a great, well, it's not great, but I mean, it's a very poignant and a very personal story um, that I think other people need to hear to help them heal through grief. Yeah, that's kind of where we're going with this. I, I agree. Those are That's a good way to put it. Okay. Um, so I will start by saying uh, we've tried to do this podcast a couple of times and it just doesn't come out. So I'm going to gloss over the particulars of most of this story to get to the meat of the story, which is the grief part. But two years ago in January... Uh, so that was January... 2021. Uh, my father, who was 85, going on 86, who had been a smoker for 70 years, contracted a bit of lung cancer, which was way later than we all thought it would happen. And so he also had COPD. And so he was having trouble breathing. Um Mom, who was a uh, a stroke victim, but she could talk and and uh, feed herself and and do stuff, but she was mostly bedridden. She needed help getting up and walking around. So, uh, like like Grandma Georgina in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, she had a bed in the living room, and we kind of moved around her. Yeah, and so my parents kind of dad took care of her, and they had a caretaker as well. And somewhere in the middle of, I'm going to say December, because it was, or maybe it was the start of January, yeah? Mm -mm. No? January? Two, in, two weeks out. Yeah, two weeks out. Okay. We'll call it two weeks out. Uh, the caretaker tested positive. Uh, it is unknown whether she ever got COVID or not, but she tested positive, so she stopped going. I went up there and checked on them. Uh, they were fine. They were doing okay. Uh, they degraded pretty quick. Uh, so that we ended up needing to get a full-time caretaker. And in that time frame, and we're talking days, it happened very quick. It felt like hours, honestly. It changed. I, I, I'd go with that. Yeah. We, we thought dad was experiencing uh, COPD symptoms, and it turns out he had COVID. Well, I went up there to help him, and Lisa Kay went up there to help him because she knew my, my folks were well. Uh, my Uncle Ernie, who was my mom's baby brother, 
came all the way out from uh, the beach to help. So the three of us were all lifting and caretaking and and um, moving around my father and my mother in a two-day, three-day period. Exactly. Over a weekend, a Friday to a Sunday. Uh, before we figured out he actually had COVID. This is we learned a lot personally from this because uh, how we got it was he was pretty much ground zero and we were breathing mouth to mouth in some cases. Right. Well, I would say just does we weren't haphazard about it. I I certainly wore a mask. You wore a mask, but we no. were right. Are you are you saying we weren't all willy nilly? We were <laughs> we were not all willy nilly in in the caretaking of this. But right. he was certainly. Uh, um, primary giver of this. So, uh, and I didn't know a lot about oxygen, blood oxygen. I really didn't. And we got a little pulse ox meter on like Sunday and his was at 63. And when I got a hold of the nurse on Monday, she screamed at me, get him to the hospital. In very short order after that, um, he passed four days later. My mother passed the next day and it, they were, it was COVID a hundred percent. It was COVID. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I got it. Lisa K got it. Uh, my wife got it. My aunt got it. My uncle got it. And uh, five weeks later, my uncle passed away too. So out of the eight of us that got uh, this strain, three of them passed away. Uh, and my uncle was way too young. Uh, he, they let it go a little too long before he got into the hospital, and he was too far gone before they could uh, stop the spread, and, and he passed. Now, there was a lot of stuff that went with that afterwards. I ended up being executor. I am the oldest son. I am the closest child and sibling, so I had to take care of the uh, the stuff. First of all, I was sick. Very sick for a while. Lisa Kay ended up getting very sick, and she was a long hauler. Lasted about six months, yeah? Uh, yeah, six to nine months. So uh, there's number one. I was sick when this happened. Number two, I got to take care of all of the uh, the uh, funeral arrangements. Details. And the, and the, and the safe and the, and the computer passwords and the banks and all the stuff that goes with it. My siblings all came out at one point. And my sister, God bless her, who is a dual citizen because she married a Canadian. Yeah, I know. Shocking. I, and her children, too. No. Yep. The oh. kids of my sister has Canadian kids. Oh, my God. That's um, a great book. My sister, my sister has Canadian, Canadian kids. <laughs> it would be like the Sedaris's. <laughs> anyway, uh, in the time of COVID, she could not get out of the country. And so she was stuck. She missed the deaths. She missed the caretaking, the deaths, the... Uh, all the stuff that went with it and did not get out for eight months before she could come. And she helped a little bit with the last little bit of the house and pictures. Um, tragically, don't get me started on that whole hullabaloo. And and while we're talking about grief, and we'll probably bring this up a little bit later, I'm grieving de- dying parents. She's grieving dying parents, missing all the stuff. Mm-hmm. Angry at a country, angry at policies, angry at a disease, a global pandemic, and grieving all of those things, right? So, uh, maybe first point here, Lisa, is that grief can take on multiple dimensions in its, in its facilitation and implementation of how it works in our brains and bodies. I would totally agree with that. And so, 
back to my take on a lot of this stuff when it has to do with healing is the story becomes important. And understanding that taking stock of the story and how it processes in your body is equally as important. And how you heal and fix it and get rid of or indoctrinate the pieces that you're going to keep also becomes important. So, uh, that year basically was cleaning the house because my mother was one box away from an episode of Hoarders and it, it <laughs> took, uh, there was a lot to get rid of that, right? To take care of all of that. And my, my sibs did come out except for my sister. The, the sister-in-laws came out, God bless them. And, and we did a lot of stuff and we got, we got rid of all that stuff, right? I, doing this work, am well aware that I'm going to process this probably a year later, right? And I'm going to stop myself right there and go back in time in the wayward machine <laughs> to almost 29 years ago, which is when I got sober. And one of the things I did, I believe it was at my therapist's request, was to start journaling. Now, kids, I am not a journaler. I, I don't want to write all that stuff down. I don't want to take the time. Uh, if you've ever heard of a book called The uh, the Artist's Way, which talks about morning pages that you get up every morning and you write for 20 minutes straight, I've tried that three times and can't get through it. I'm just not a day-to-day -day meditation guy. And so this was one of those things. And But I found it to be helpful because at the time I was – crazy. I was going to say I was going crazy. I was already crazy. I was insane. I have a journal that I just looked at recently here. In fact, the journal I'm talking about and, and the starting line says, I am slowly going crazy. I was already fucking there. Let me tell you. So in this journal, I just started writing the day-to-day -day stuff. And about three or four or five years in, I think I've even talked about this, right? Um, I would wake up after I got better. So yeah, four or five years out, I would wake up and, and it'd just be heavy, and I can't get out of bed. But the sun is shining, so it can't be SIDS. And and I have, I'm not going out with anybody, so it can't it's be the girlfriend. SIDS? SIDS? SADS? SADS. Seasonal Affective Disorder. Correct. My bad. SIDS is a totally the, different thing. Yeah, I wasn't dying in a crib. I, I was slowly being affected by the absence of light. Um, so uh, I wasn't going out with anybody, so it wasn't the girlfriend. Job was okay. I uh, wasn't married, so that was okay. And You know, I mean, I, I systematically went through my checklist of, of uh, mentally, physically, emotional, emotionally, uh, spiritually, financially, sexually, all those things that we talked about a little bit before here, and, and nothing was wrong. So now I have to go to the therapist. And I go to the therapist, and we would work our way back. And uh, what started happening was, what were you doing this time last year? What were you doing this time the year before? I'd go back and look at the journals, and <gasps> this time last year, I was depressed. I got this pattern down over the course of 10 years of journaling to the day. I'd wake up, something's not right. I'd go to the journal and on this day for the last six years, I've been depressed or been angry or something's wrong. And I would take that information and go to therapy. And through the therapeutic method of talk therapy, we would get to a point of understanding what the problem was. I think uh, one of the most poignant ones that I can talk about is like riding on a bus has always been depressing to me. A bus. But it's also been one of the most peaceful things. And it took a while to figure out that I was leaving a house of abuse mm -hmm. and going to school. So mm -hmm. there was respite in the bus ride. Got it. 
But then I'd go to school, and because I was dyslectic and ADD, oh, that was, and that was all frustrating. Got it. Getting on the bus and going home was a respite, right? So, those kind of little tricks of the mental trade I learned in therapy and found out that by doing the the personal work of understanding what's not currently happening, then I could go through the journal and find out what may have been a pattern of happening and then go back through therapy and get to the bottom of what did happen and then I could clear it out. And so I found that to be a very useful tool. So I knew, back to present day, that by waiting out the year, uh, I was eventually going to get to uh, the anniversary day of the death and I would process it because what i also found was in july if they died in january i'm not going to process anything in january right i'll give you another for instance lisa Mm -hmm. when when my lisa was going through her cancer uh, i distinctly remember on the morning of the surgery i went i walked from the hospital uh, uh john wayne hospital in santa monica down to a uh, Starbucks, which was like three or four blocks away. I have a super vivid memory of what a dark, dreary, overcast, heavy day that was. Mm. And I remember looking, the the picture that sticks in my mind is of a dead tree or a tree that didn't have any leaves on it and looking up at the the gray sky with the heavy dampness in the air Mm. and locking that into this is what that day looked like. Mm. Well, the next, I think, three or four years on that day... It was sunny and it was it was a beautiful day. So it was fine. It was fine. On the fourth or fifth year, it was an overcast day and I couldn't get out of bed that day. Ooh. And and my brain had shut everything down. And so I'm like, what the fuck? I I what's going on? I pull the journal out and go, oh, oh. man. Right? For years, my Lisa would wake up and have, and she'd go two or three days before she said, you know what, I just, I felt like crap the last three or four days. And I'd pull out the journal, because I kept the journal of that time frame for sure, specific, a separate one. And we'd go, you know what, you were going through uh, um, radiation this week, mm. seven years ago. It lasted almost nine years for her. Mm. The, the day-to-day annually lasted, her body knew what was going on in that time frame. That is grief folks. That is not a mental thing. It's not an emotional thing. It is a physical locked in your tissues down to your very soul kind of thing. And to me, that's been my experience with grief. Now, we were just talking about this, Lisa. Mm -hmm. There's there's more to grief than death or more to death than grief, right? Correct. Death isn't the only thing that brings about grief. But Forms of death mm-hmm. can bring on grief. Sure. So, like the death of a relationship. Yes. Divorce. Correct. Right? Uh, a, a child going to another parent. That's a grief. Uh, loss of a job. Yes. I would say, um, especially like thinking about Lisa, uh, when you have a big cancer slash accident slash whatever happened, um, there's a there's a grief over a loss of the life that you had before. So, um, 
when I when I had my near death accident, for instance, they told me great example. They told me you will never run again. So I was in my early fifties. Uh, their prognosis for me was go sit on the couch and get ready to die, kind of thing, because you're never going to walk, you're never going to run, you're never going to na 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 na. So you said that in concrete. I mean, at the time you took that to be gospel truth. I did, I did. But and then so I had to grieve over that. I had to grieve over the the life I thought I was going to have, and I had to grieve over the life that I had had because you know I was active. If I wanted to go somewhere, I went somewhere. That in that moment, it didn't look like that was going to happen. So I needed to grieve over that as well. But that just went away the next year, right? Uh, no, I didn't. No? What about the year after that? <laughs> no, it took a little while. I will tell you, having sat in an office with this woman for the last five years, there's more to it than that, right? There's also um, not just parental deaths. I, let me go back a little bit. I lost my parents that year in a year time frame. Lisa mm-hmm. Kay also lost her parents. Well, in that time frame. Not together, though. No, close. So, here's here's actually the time frame. September of 2020, I lost my father. And then your parents died in January of... 2021. And then my mother uh, died about a year ago in April of 22. So, almost a year. A little over a year. Right. Um, so, we've both experienced that. And in that has come some... some Grieving. Lisa Kay has also, we talked about in her story, uh, when the ex looked at her in the hospital room, she grieves that day, right? You not know, Well, not necessarily that day, but the, it, what I, was it? There was one recently where you were like, that was the day he did X. Um, that, that was, well, I'll, I'll back up just a little tiny bit. I think in my married life, um, I had three huge fears. Um, my fear was hurting my kids. Um, my other fear was being homeless. And my other fear was uh, dying alone or being unattached. Uh, and I did all three of those things in five minutes. I I, yeah. I packed a suitcase and I left. Um, and I had to face those fears and I had to grieve over the life that I thought I was going to have. You know, I was never going to have Norman Rockwell painting, sitting at Thanksgiving with the big turkey and all the kids and all the grandkids and all of that. That was never, ever, ever going to happen. The point being, though, it wasn't just a, a like you hear fear and, and people think emotional. It mm-hmm. was a visceral, visceral oh, responsive, yeah. stuck to your bones kind of thing. Oh, for sure. And so us being cyclical beings, the earth revolving around the sun in 365 days, Mercury retrograde, all the things that come with with planetary alignment and movement, we are cyclical beings and our bodies know these cycles. You can't deny moon cycles and periods and, and having emotions within family ties and even with spouses and children. All of that stuff is very real. And so when it comes to grief, this is this is a glue that sticks for sure. It is. You know, I think it's really important that in our society, in most modern societies, we remember things, we call them anniversaries, we call them birthdays. We remember the day you were born. We remember uh, the day we were married. So we we tend to celebrate those uh, those those positive things but as cyclical beings we definitely I think our body remembers uh, anniversaries in a different way right it, we re-experience some of the things that we felt 
during that time. Absolutely. And and I also believe because I've learned this, and I just gave you a great example of it, there's also environmental imprint, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, for your, sure. Your, your body knows time and temperature and and air pressure and things that you don't even think about, mm-hmm. and it's recording them all into this this dump space of emotional trauma. Mm-hmm. And so uh, across the boards, whether it's physical or mental or verbal or sexual or traumatic car accident or surgical or, or any one of those things, your body is recording, and we're designed to do so. Your body is recording everything. Definitely. And it's being stuck in the different filters that your body processes stuff. I know I talked about this before when I was in my first visceral class and and they were talking about the liver and the 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 guy says, "Oh, by the way, if if you have a somebody that's brokenhearted or you've lost a parent, check the liver, right? You're sending you're sending 20,000 gallons of brokenhearted blood through an organ. Wow. Don't tell me it doesn't have an effect, right? Exactly. Kidneys uh, realize, he says, if you have a, a child that's lost a parent or a parent that's lost a child, check the kidneys, right? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes you'll see some kind of major reaction like like diabetes, diabetes one or two. I'm like, mm-hmm. shut up. At the time I knew somebody that was going through that, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, over and over and over you start hearing these stories and it's not a Western medicine thing either. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not going to attach a, a kidney failure to the loss of a parent. It is never going to happen in the world that I've grown up in, right? I think something that's really, really, really important to talk about um, when we're talking about any sort of grief. Um, Let's take a, for instance, John's parents got sick um, and they both passed away and it was quick, mercifully, it was quick, uh, fairly. Um, However, his experience with grief is going to be super different than mine. Um, My father had... Alzheimer's for a really long time before he passed away. So literally, he wasn't the man that I knew when he passed away. He didn't remember who I was. Uh, he uh, he just he he wasn't there. Um, my mom had uh, memory loss. Uh, my sister and I truly believe that her memory loss was related to she uh, she had had cancer and it had metastasized to her brain, and they had done. Uh, they irradiated her brain, and we believe well, that seems logical. Yeah, right. we we very much believe that that was a, a huge part of her later memory loss. Um, but so here's the other: th- mom wasn't mom for eight years, ten years. So when you have someone caregiving for an Alzheimer's patient, for a memory loss patient. Um, they're grieving for a really long time because day by day by day, you're losing that person. Let me let me address that because uh, I have had clients that way, and it's it's a little bit of a different English on the ball here. Mm-hmm. Those people, and I'm talking specifically primary caretakers mm-hmm. who are family members. So oftentimes, it's a daughter and a mother or a daughter and a father. Um, they go with them down that rabbit hole. Right. They, they, there's no way they can't, and so it's a it's a visual mind trick to see the person you know as mother mm-hmm. and the institution you know as motherhood. Right. They kind of separate because what you see is mother, mm-hmm. 
but the institution of motherhood dissipates. And in that split, in that in that psychic split, you go down that rabbit hole of sickness with them, mm-hmm. and your heart slowly. Oh, I'm gonna make myself cry. You, that your heart slowly pulls itself apart as it breaks. It's it's horrifically tragic, and they don't know how to get out of that most of the time. Um, and the ones that have come to me after that, it takes a while to process and ramp back up because you have lost, literally you've lost your soul as you've caretaken this person who caretook you to get you to the point where you were able to caretake them. It, it, it's the circle of life in, in a really different way. Correct. And so um, it takes, it's you are really grieving while your heart is being pulled apart. And by the time you get to the end of that and they pass, you don't have time or space or emotional wind, bandwidth to grieve. Your grief is all dried up. Mm-hmm. Everything. You may as well be an Alzheimer patient yourself. Mm-hmm. And so it takes some time to come back with that because we are not designed to do that, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And and these people are shells of the, their former selves, and it takes a while to come back with that. To heal from that, you need help. You need somebody. I told that story the last time I was here. You need somebody to jump in that hole with you mm-hmm. and show you how to carve stairs to get out of it so that you can get back to the road of life that you can walk on. Because there's no way you're pulling yourself out of that abyss yourself. You're just going to walk around empty. Right. Empty. I'll give you another story. I had a friend who, uh, and I've seen this more than once. I've seen this several times. She had been dating a man. He had no kids, no family at all. I had, she was friends of mine. She was an art friend. We talked to each other. I went over to her house one time and, uh, and I noticed there were bags. I went to the bathroom. There were a bunch of bags in one of the room. I'm like, what's with all the bags? She goes, oh, those were his. And, and he, 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 had, he had passed been, away. He had passed away of cancer. She had taken care of him while he passed away from cancer. He died. This is a year later. She's living in his apartment. He willed everything to her. I said, is there more stuff? She gets up. We walk downstairs, we go to the garage, she lifts the garage up and goes, <gasps> and her shoulders slump and her head drops and she bent at the knees a little bit and the garage was packed full oh of stuff. Gosh. I'm like, have you been sitting on this for a year? She's living in a sarcophagus is what she's doing, right? This is death. This is not a grieving process. This is a stagnant process of waiting to grieve. She, she, and she didn't have anybody. So she sat in that and stayed in that position because nobody had really helped her come out of that. This is where friends and family or or you know people who love us can help greatly with the grieving process because sometimes you got to get rid of the stuff. A lot of times, a lot of times, if not every time, one of the processes that happens is we are afraid that we're going to forget. And by being so afraid that we're going to forget, we can't let go of the stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we sleep and lie and hang out with and won't let go of the stuff. And now what you have is a daily reminder of the death part because you're not really working on the life part yet, right? So I believe that grieving has to do with letting go, not just of the person, but of the stuff. I would say, though, I, I totally agree with you. I think... Thank you. 
<laughs> it always goes smoother when I agree with you, doesn't it? Um, I, th- I think that the important thing to remember in the middle of it is that grief is a process, that you don't, uh, the, the death or the, the, the incident doesn't happen on a Tuesday and uh, you jump out of bed on Wednesday and, okay, I'm all better. You know, it, it is a process. It, and here's another thing that I find super important. Um, I had, uh, I think I had posted something on Facebook, just kind of a memorial for my mom. And I heard at least 15 times, I know just how you feel. Which is bullshit. Um, It it is the most dangerous thing I think you can say to another person. There are so many other things that you could say, like, that must be really hard. Or, um, my heart really hurts for you. Or, I've been thinking a lot about you. Um, Two things... Please don't say these two things to anyone who is grieving or is in the middle of an illness or any of those things. I know just how you feel because you don't. And what can I do? Because at that moment, they're not going to know what you can do. You know, I I heard an AA speaker. She was a wonderful AA speaker whose daughter had been killed in a tragic car accident. And she, one of the ways she healed was to be a speaker in AA and and tell her story. And she, uh, this had happened years prior, but she had... uh, she told the story, and then the speaker usually goes down, and people greet them, especially at conventions or whatnot. And this lady came up and grabbed her hand and wouldn't let go, and looked her in the eye and said, "I I know just how you feel. Oh, oh my God, I know just how you feel." And the lady, she's in tears. She goes, "Oh my God, did you lose a daughter too?" She said, "No, my dog." <gasps> Yeah, she goes, it's the closest I've ever come to punching another human in the face, right? To your point, and agreed, this stuff takes time. And I think what's really important is that at some point you have to acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. Now, me being me, and me being who I am, and me being a person that distributes this advice to other people, I am still subject to it as well. So when I'm going through it, I don't know I'm going through it. And sometimes I have to listen to my own advice from other people or their advice, it sounds a lot like mine, to other, through other people. And uh, this was the case on or about the first year of the anniversary of my parents' death. Although I knew it at some level, I was also super busy. And my wife and I had gone on a vacation to Hawaii. We were looking at trying to buy uh, or purchase the lease agreement of the place we were staying at. And um, a lot of things went south All at once. All at once. And so I was in a whirlwind of business and personal stuff, all while trying to facilitate grieving and not even know that's what I was doing. So my body knew it was coming up. Long story short, what happened was we got illegally evicted uh, to the tune of I had a, a meeting with the person who bought it out from under us. And was told, get your stuff out by the end of the day or I'm going to start selling it off or throw it in the parking lot. And an hour and a half later, they had changed the locks. So, it, it literally, it was nightmarish business-wise. And so, we withered that. We got all this stuff out. We, we're doing okay, right? A year later, we're in the best place possible, which is where we're at now. But here's the thing. It took maybe three weeks mm-hmm. before I realized the day that we were kicked out of that place and that the locks were changed was the first year anniversary of my father's death. Mm. 
So I didn't have time to process that. No. I didn't have time to grieve that. I didn't even realize it for three weeks, Mm-mm. right? So three weeks later, I ain't nobody got time for that. Now I'm scrambling to get a business up and running and ch- change rooms and move stuff. We moved two more times before we got into the place we're at now. So I pushed that shit to the back burner, right? Now... We, we get into a temporary place. We're in that place. It's a much smaller room. It's a super dark room. And uh, what do you think, Lisa? June, July? Mm-hmm. I go through a monster depression. And I'm not a depression person, people. You know, I know what depression is like. But this came in the form of, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do this anymore. Okay, And there's a couple key aspects to this particular thing. One, I was in a place that was way too small for the energy that I'm dispelling and trying to do to help people in the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Two, the walls were so thin I could hear conversations on all four sides. Mm-hmm. Um, three, it, it it didn't have an energetic feel that, that works for me uh, transitionally. Four, I, I should have been depressed. Mm-hmm. And, and then five, um, there was no creativity. If you've ever been to this office, I have big whiteboards up that I just write on all the time because I have multiple thought processes in my room. I've got a whiteboard in my room. I've got uh, sticky notes and a pen in Lisa's office. I have a big whiteboard. Lisa's office has a whiteboard because when I'm in my creative space, especially in the healing space, stuff just starts coming. And, And if I don't write it down, I either forget it completely or I can't concentrate on what I'm doing because one thought overrides the other. But if I write them down, then I can systematically cross them out or, or put them into action. Yeah. Right. Well, I've, right. Go ahead. Oh, well, one thing that definitely we're sitting in that office, and let me say, um, we are thankful that we got into that office. It's very difficult to find an office in Redlands. Last minute. Last minute. Uh, so we are thankful. It just never fit us. But we have been trying to start a podcast all during that time. So we would get to a point and we, oh God, this just is just, too much. Too much. too much. Couldn't do it. Um, I had read, uh, you know, po- podcasting for dummies. I had read uh, books. I had I had even taken like a, an online course about how to start a podcast. And uh, we would get there and it would just feel like uh, climbing Mount Whitney. It just like was impossible. And that, that was just one of many endeavors we were playing. There was, what I'm trying to say is with the whiteboard thing, there was no creativity in this space. There was nothing for us to create. We were cramped and we were small. So what happened one day, I think it was July. Yeah, July. Yep, it was July. Mm-hmm. Um, I was driving home and I went home and I sat down. And I looked at the wife and I said, I think I'm done. I, I don't think I can do this anymore. And it wasn't, uh, I wasn't giving up. I was just, I was angry. Um about 98% of my clients were were fluff massages. I was looking at the clock 20 minutes up going, oh, I got to do this another 20 minutes. All all of those things. And uh, and then the next day I went in and I told Lisa Kay, I told Lisa last night that I think I'm done. I, I, uh, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. And Lisa Kay said... What would it take? What would be the perfect spot? Uh, what would it take for you to stay and keep going? So I thought about that. I thought about that. And right off the top of my head, the first thing I said was, well, I think I need three rooms because I want to expand. You need an office at least triple this size. I want my whiteboards back. And we need to be able to create and feel free to create and teach and build our our 
our group, our tribe, mm-hmm. right? She said, okay. I said, let's throw this into the universe. The next day, Lisa got a call from a landlord we'd had three places ago. Right. Where we're at now is... Pre-COVID. That was our pre-COVID. pre-COVID. Yeah, we left that in COVID to go to this other place that we got kicked out of. Uh, we are one block away from that. In fact, City Hall is between us and the building we were in before, which was upstairs downtown Redlands. Mm-hmm. She calls and says what, Lisa? She said, hey, you know... Um, I have a place that's coming open. It's not going to be open until September yes. 1st. Right, exactly. That's yes. exactly it. And then she said, would you be interested? And I'm yes. like, we can be there in five minutes. So, Yeah. Dudes, literally. Listeners. Healy's. 24 hours later. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Man, if you, if you trust the universe, throw that shit out there because it'll come back. It may slap you in the face, mm. but sometimes it opens up and drops you right in the pool. Mm-hmm. So we came over here. She goes, well... You know, it's it's not available till September. We're like, seriously? Are you kidding me? I mean, how much more perfect can it be? Mm-hmm. How much is it? Like a hundred bucks more than what we're paying? It was just a little more than what we were paying. Um, and and check this out. Three times the space Lisa had plus a higher ceiling. A room for me that was big enough and or bigger with a higher ceiling. And windows. We wanted and windows. And windows. And then another big room that we could split into two. And uh, we are now sitting on three rooms plus Lisa's office plus... A, a teaching space plus a a space for the tribe to come. We had a meeting here last night, mm-hmm. and uh, so that was September, right? We it gave us time to get out of where we were, mm-hmm. gracefully and ethically. Mm-hmm. Um, it gave us time to facilitate the move. It gave us time to do some things that we already had on the books, and then we walked in here and put this place together. And this is where we're at now. Mm-hmm. So maybe. Let's say September, October, November-ish, mm-hmm. I start feeling, I don't know if down is the right word, but sluggish? Uh, sluggish is a good word. I, I would say it wasn't down so much as it was a lack of joy. Yeah. And and it was noticed. Some other people were saying it. I had, uh, I had clients that were saying stuff. Now, I know depression. I know depression. And it didn't feel depressy, but it certainly didn't feel happy-go-lucky either. And uh, then it occurred to me as we got closer and closer to January, mm-hmm. oh, crap, I know what this is. This is what this is. This is the depression that should have come last year, and now here we are. The weather mirrored the original year much better. Mm-hmm. Um and so I started dealing with it. I started writing stuff. I started talking to people. I started uh, gr- allowing myself to grieve it and to kind of dump it back into the earth where it belonged. Mm-hmm. And uh, my tribe that I was now having meetings here with uh, said they noticed it as well. Mm-hmm. And um, this is going to be a much longer podcast, what I'm about to say. And all I'm going to do is just drop a little dime here. To tell you one of the things that helped me get out of this is uh, one of our clients went to a ketamine treatment and she came back and said she was healed. Mm -hmm. This is somebody who had severely deep chronological depression. It was chronic. I I think that she had... From a a childhood abuse perspective and it 
I, I was well aware and knew the story and had felt it in the body and had worked through a lot of stuff. She'd gotten a lot better, but there was just some stuff she hadn't and couldn't get rid of. She said it was gone. And I said, uh, She said after the first treatment, and I always start this with, I am a skeptic, okay? I <laughs> I grew up in Missouri, so show me, right? Um, that's kind of a joke because Missouri's a show me state. See? Get it? Ah. Get it? Um, she said first treatment, it was done. The cloud of depression had lifted, and it just wasn't the, there anymore. The absence of sadness. Right. Yeah. Right. And then she had another one and said it was just completely gone. Right. So we started researching and looking into this. Um, and then, uh, again, I don't want to turn this into the podcast. We, mm -hmm. we looked into ketamine. We had some people try some ketamine. We've also looked into psilocybin. We went to a, a huge conference last year in Boston to learn about this. Uh, here's the four big ones that are coming, and this is what we'll talk about when we get there. Um, MDMA, ketamine, ayahuasca, and psilocybin. Those psychedelics or those mental processing drugs okay. um, are going to be the future of mental health. So that was one of the things that helped me through this depression I'm talking about. And what I was told was almost immediately um, people could see the difference and tell the difference. And I will talk more about that later. But that wasn't the only thing that, that worked, right? Um, here's a thing that was I think has been very, very helpful is that my siblings and I, because they're all across the country, I got a brother in Scottsdale, Arizona. Shout out to my sister-in-law, who <laughs> listens. She's an avid listener. Uh, I got another brother in North Carolina. Shout out, North Carolina. They're also avid listeners, and that sister-in-law just celebrated her 60th birthday yesterday. Uh, welcome to the club, by the woo, way, woo, Karen. And yeah. then uh, my sister, the Canadian, uh, lives up near Toronto. <laughs> that just um, sounds so funny. My, my sister, sister, the, the Can Canadian. I have a girlfriend, but she lives in Canada. <laughs> um, so uh, we started Zooming once a month. We have a Zoom meeting once a month. And every once in a while, somebody will bring in a guest a cousin or a guest sibling or a guest, not sibling, a guest child. And uh, and we just kind of keep up that way. And what a marvelous, I may be late on that train, but what a marvelous thing. It's kept us together. And and we've kind of grieved through that. And um, anytime, there's been a couple of times over the last two years where we've gone out to the gravesite and, uh, and we've texted or Zoomed or had a, uh, had a FaceTime uh, little meeting there. So, um, part of the grieving process was to get closer together as a family. Yeah? I like that. And, and that has made a lot of sense. Part of the grieving process, uh, at one point, it took, uh, it took three months to get my parents buried. So, I mean, it was a long process because it was in the middle of COVID. Um, can I tell that story about that client that asked me? I'm going to say it anyway. Oh. oh. All right. And here, here, this is a Webster thing, all right? I, I'm going to premise this by saying it's a Webster thing. This is how the Webster part of the Webster clan processes heavy-duty shit, all right? <laughs> this, is, this is our family having dinner, talking shit, and laughing so hard, mashed potatoes come out of our nose, all right? I'm working on a client, and she was a... a I'm going to say a, a bit of a handle. She, she, In fact, we had to fire her because she was a little too much. Um, I'm working on this client. 
in this time frame right after my parents had died, maybe maybe a month after my parents had died, and I'm back to working, and and uh, I've got that blocked off, so I'm not transferring that. And uh, this is the type of client she was. I have my hands on her head doing cranial sacral therapy. It's totally quiet. The music's playing. It's very dark in the room, and she reaches up with both hands and grabs my wrists and cocks her head up and looks me in the eye, and she says, they're in a much better place. <laughs> and I went... <laughs> And she stops and she looks at me and she froze and she goes, what? I said, yeah, they are. They're in a refrigerator in Colton. <laughs> <laughs> and she lets oh go goodness. and she was aghast. And I'm like, they're well, not, they're not buried yet. You're right. They are in a much better place. But, but I, I might, when I told that story at the sibling meeting, let me tell you, you got to laugh. It right? went over really well. It went over big, right? So uh, laughing can be a, a big part of the healing process if, if that's who you are, right? Talking about it. Crying can be a big part of the healing process. Screaming and throwing rocks like the Forrest Gump at the sometimes there aren't enough rocks at the house kind of story can be. Lieutenant Dan screaming at God from the crow's nest in the storm, that's a good way to heal, right? Silent. Uh, introspection. Introspection with yourself and the God of your understanding can certainly be a grieving process. Hugging your babies on a daily basis, talking to people, can all be part of the healing process, right? Understanding that that person needs space, but being in the same space without interjecting your own shit on that person can be very healing to a person who's grieving, right? There are lots of ways to grieve. Here's what's not okay. Not grieving. I believe that will make you very, very, very sick-er. I, I agree. Right? And so, in that, I think the whole purpose of this particular podcast is, if you are in some sort of grief, one, how about you try and understand it a little bit and know where you're at? Do a self-evaluation and figure out where you're at. Two, friends, family, preachers, people who understand, talk groups, Facebook groups, pets, fucking hug a tree. Do something to get outside of yourself and share a little bit about what's stuck inside you to let go of some of that grieving process. And understand, please, that it is not a one-time fix. It is not going to go away, especially if this person was with you for 50 years mm -hmm. or longer. It's going to take some time, if ever, to go away. And some of that you do want to keep. Just don't keep it to the point where you're making yourself sick. I think there's two things I'd like to add. Uh, one is grief is not one size fits all. It's not. Uh, the way I grieve and the way I feel it and the things that feel appropriate for me are not going to work for you. Um, that's that's the a very big point. But a, li a like-minded individual can yes. certainly be helpful. Oh, for sure. Um, the other thing that... that caught me by surprise because both of my parents, as I said, had a, a memory loss issue at the end of their lives. I pretty much had figured, I've I've already grieved this. This is this is really just nothing. Denial. It's one of, <laughs> it's one of the five. It is. So um when it happened, I was a little surprised. Uh though I am the oldest in my family. And so the first 
Easter, the first Christmas, the first Thanksgiving, yeah. that you don't have parents anymore, and you and, and and it's that weird I'm an orphan feeling that that even though you've heard other people say it, when you feel it, it's a lot different. Um, it, and it's not; it doesn't need to be horrific. It just needs to be acknowledged. I think acknowledging your grief is super important in part of the process. Yeah, it's it's a loss, right? right. And and you're never going to forget them, right? Or the arm you lost, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, just acknowledge it, accept it, feel it, and then let go the parts that you no longer that no longer serve you, right? Correct. Let go of what no longer serves you. Lisa, I think that was a really good. Podcast. I do too. And Thank I'm, you. I'm looking forward to uh, to our friend that's going to come in and talk about the next one because she's got quite the story. I can't wait for y'all to hear it. Uh, in the meantime, be good humans. Enjoy the weather wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Hug your babies for goodness sake. Hug your loved ones for goodness sake. Go hug a stranger on the street and no. hold them like two seconds longer and say, I know what you did. <laughs> I'm going to say don't do that. Peace out, y'all. <laughs> Bye.